What exactly is a retail investor? Are you one? Would you even want to be one? What's a classically tired bit of sports analysis which analysts lean on but never actually define? And does science fiction have to be dystopian? Really? Does it sound like I might be complaining this week? Well, maybe that's because once or twice a year on Rule Breaker Investing, I do complain. It's a Pet Peeves episode. We haven't done one of these for more than a year. And so, it's time. Pet Peeves, Volume 6, only on this week's Rule Breaker Investing. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder, David Gardner. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. Yep, it's one of my favorite, admittedly, most self-indulgent podcasts to do every year. The good news is I only do this about once a year. In fact, the last time I did a Pet Peeves podcast was July of 2020. It's been more than a year. And one of the ways that I make this podcast happen is I just actively note as I'm living life day to day, I just document something happens and I just grab it and I drop it into my organizational system and I start to build lists. In fact, the way that I make a lot of these podcasts are just dynamically living life, noting something, and then adding it to a list somewhere. I use Evernote quite a lot for this. And so I just build lists and then I'm ready. Mid-September 2021 shows up and I've stored up a list of eight pet peeves that I've personally seen and experienced, in this case, over the previous 14 months. And so I'm ready. And because it's been repressed, I've bottled it up. I've saved it. I've just had to sit there silently knowing one day I would be able to talk about it. There's probably some extra energy that I bring to this podcast each time I do it once a year because I'm really still feeling it like it just happened. I was going back to see the very first Pet Peeves podcast I did. It was July 20th. Speaking of July 20th, something about that day. In this case, 2016. And my very first Pet Peeve that I let off with, and yep, I still feel the same way today. So these do stand the test of time. Some of them were state lotteries. Still not a big fan of state lotteries or littering or mandatory I've read this disclaimers that you have to sign off and check off when you use your new app or machine. You're being asked constantly to lie by lawyers. We are institutionalizing fibbing when we have us all as fellow citizens, I guess, driven by, I guess, our legal friends. We're having to say, yes, I have read this 37-page magnum opus creation of a law firm to say that I'm ready to now use this app. Yep, those are all still pet peeves for me today. And over the years, I've brought you, well, you haven't lost until you sell, which is one of the silliest lines I sometimes hear investors say, or I've argued against vanity plate hate. I don't know why we feel it. Some people feel it out there, but I I think vanity plates make the world more fun. Anyway, the list goes on and I'm about to add eight more. One thing I've done is I've never repeated any of these pet peeves. So every time I come back at you once a year or so, these are new. And it does remind me that the very final pet peeve of my first episode was pet peeve number nine, people who keep really long lists of pet peeves. And I always have to say, uh, guilty as charged, because I certainly am one of those people. But I would say at its very worst, this is pure self-indulgence ranting and not worthy of your time at its very worst. At its very best, well, maybe I cause a few of us to see a few things that you either already feel or recognize, and there's some emotional payoff for knowing 
that I'm a fellow traveler and we share that. Or maybe in some cases, I'm opening some eyes to some things you weren't seeing or noticing. But now that I've pointed it out, you can't help but being a little annoyed by it too. So this probably won't be as educational as next week's Market Cap Game Show, which we're looking forward to firing up next week, once a quarter, back to the game show. And it may not be as thinky or interesting as I fought the law and the law won a couple of weeks ago. This one is a little bit more like, I don't know, lemonade? I mean, I took the bitter lemons and I'm trying to make it into lemonade on this podcast. Or maybe it's just a bit of fluff, like putting whipped cream on top of pudding on top of your vanilla ice cream. Let's get started. Now, etymology is definitely not a pet peeve for me, but I love word origins. I've shared this with you many times over the years. And so I thought with this pet peeve episode, we should go back and just figure out where this this term came from. So let's just start there before I hit my list of eight. All right. The noun peeve, I'm reading now in Wikipedia, the pet peeve entry in Wikipedia, the noun peeve, meaning an annoyance, is believed to have originated in the United States early in the 20th century, derived by back formation from the adjective peevish, which means, of course, ornery or ill-tempered, itself dating from the late 14th century. But the term pet peeve was introduced to a wide readership in the single-panel comic strip The Little Pet Peeve in the Chicago Tribune during the period 1916 to 1920. The strip was created by cartoonist Frank King, who also created the long-running Gasoline Alley strip. King's quotes, little pet peeves were humorous critiques of generally thoughtless behaviors and nuisance frustrations. Examples included people reading the subtitles aloud, watching silent films, cracking an egg only to smell that it's gone rotten, backseat drivers, and rugs that keep catching the bottom of the door and bunching up. Skipping down a little bit more, current usage and examples, Wikipedia says, well, pet peeves often involve specific behaviors of someone close, like a spouse or a significant other. These behaviors may involve disrespect, manners, personal hygiene, relationships, and family issues. And if you have a close family member sitting next to you, you can rib them a little bit and they can rib you back. As I read off that list, a key aspect of a pet peeve is that it may well seem acceptable or insignificant to others. Yeah, that's the pet portion of it. A lot of these may well seem insignificant to you, not bother you at all, but that's what makes them my pet peeve. And I do want to say at the end of this month, we will of course have the Rule Breaker Investing mailbag for September. And I would love for you to share a few of your own pet peeves, especially ones that you think might be broadly felt or humorous. If you can open my eyes to something new, I'd love to open all of our listeners' eyes to something new through your pet peeves submitted to the mailbag this month. If you like, the email address rbi at fool.com. Okay, well, with a little bit of the history, the origin of this term, which is really only about a century old, emerging from the United States of America, let's go with pet peeve number one this week. All right, pet peeve number one, and it's the phrase retail investor. Now, I've heard this phrase a lot over the course of my life. Perhaps you have too. I don't think I've ever used the phrase myself. I wouldn't describe myself as a retail investor. I don't walk around saying, well, the Motley Fool membership has some retail investors, or you, my dear listener, you're a retail investor. It's not a term that I would adopt for myself. I would say I'm an individual investor, or maybe maybe a private investor. But that phrase, 
retail investors has always bothered me a little bit, and the bother has grown over the course of time. So let's start, first of all, speaking of defining terms, by defining our term. Because I was like, why are people using the phrase retail investor? Where did that come from? So I went to another excellent website on the internets, and that would be dictionary.com, which has lots of definitions. And I thought, well, let me just look up retail and just remind myself of what this word means. Of course, as a noun, retail is the sale of goods to ultimate consumers, usually in small quantities. Adjective, retail investor, pertaining to or connected with or engaged in sale at retail. And all of a sudden, I realized the reason we're being called retail investors is because we were the ones who were sold to. Back in the old days, especially when there were brokers and clients, we were the client and the broker was put in the position by his or her firm to sell their ideas to us. Therefore, we are retail investors. Never mind that the quality of the merchandise being sold to us at different points may have been good or particularly bad and completely apart from the motivations of financial professionals either today or back at that time. And there are so many good ones and there are also so many bad ones, but we were being sold to. So now that we've sort of established why the phrase, I then Googled, of course, retail investor and started to learn more. I like this definition, this difference between institutional and retail investors to often opposed crowds. This one comes from Investopedia and they say a retail investor is an individual or non-professional investor who buys and sells securities through brokerage firms or savings accounts like 401ks. And I like that. I agree with that. Institutional investors, Investopedia goes on, do not use their own money, but rather invest other people's money on their behalf. That's a very lovely and elegant way, uh, I guess, of, of creating two buckets, the retail investors and the institutional investors. What jumps out to me from Investopedia is the phrase, institutional investors do not use their own money. And sometimes I think while retail investors, I guess, are looked down upon or sometimes belittled, as we'll hear in just a sec, it is worth remembering that we're investing our own money, not just getting paid to invest somebody else's money. And so I think there's a lot to be said for being a retail investor in that way. So anyway, there's Investopedia. But as I look down, some of the people also ask results on Google. I see phrases like, why do retail investors lose money? Do retail investors make money? What is the role of retail investors? And here again, I find something I like. This one comes from a site I've never used, wallstreetmojo.com. But this is how they write about the role of retail investors. The retail investor provides capital to corporate when other sources of financing seem difficult. Since they tend to invest for a longer period than institutional investors, they play a crucial role in building the stock market and thereby the economy of a country. And I really agree with that. And I like that a lot. That makes me smile and willing to call myself a retail investor. And then I keep clicking around further on the internet and I hit an article like this one from Oxford University. That's right. Yep. The University of Oxford, that one. And the Saeed Business School, where one of its professors is liberally quoted in an article entitled, Retail Investors Are Amateurs in a High Stakes Market they cannot win. And according to this professor, and I'll just quote from the article here, academic experts consistently advise private investors not to invest in individual shares. Quote, 
Retail investors will always lose money because they lack the education, whereas financial professionals are well-informed. That's what they do, end quote. And now we start seeing why the phrase retail investor, for me anyway, is a pet peeve, because it implies that you and I, who are actually investing our own money and doing quite well at that, thank you very much. For I think I'm speaking for a lot of listeners right now and a lot of Motley Fool members over the years. And it's that we're second-class citizens, rubes, yokels, bumpkins. The list goes on. Um, I'm actually going to settle on the word imbeciles, which I'm, I'm going to use in a sec. But it's that we will always lose money, in the words of this Saeed Business School professor, because we lack the education financial professionals are well-informed. Well, I beg to differ. I think it's very clear that there are good investors and bad investors in all different contexts. But to group everybody who's not an institutional investor and call them retail investors, and then to close this rant, and then to introduce 2021 and meme stocks. And by the way, who's apparently driving the meme stock craze? You guessed it. Retail investors. Now, I would submit to you a tiny, tiny percentage of individual investors are even paying attention to the GameStops of the world or the meme stocks. I realize it gets a lot of headlines, and it is certainly something to pay attention to here in 2021. I would say meme stocks will be one of the memories of 2021, maybe making some top 10 lists in terms of their impact. But a tiny percentage of mom and pop individual investors are taking big risks in companies that I don't think have particularly good prospects. And it's being called a retail investor revolution. And again, I will beg to differ. So in conclusion, one of my pet peeves, pet peeve number one, not just the phrase retail investor, which I never use and I don't think in those terms, but really so much of the baggage surrounding being an investor who's not a professional. And therefore, I guess, according to Professor K at Oxford, we are doomed to lose money always because we lack the education. All right, let's move on to pet peeve number two. And pet peeve number two, yep, we're going to stick in the investment world, sticking with, in this case, a maxim that I've just never liked. I mentioned one earlier on the show. You haven't lost money until you sell, which I certainly disagree with. But here's another one. Ever heard this one? Bulls make money. Bears make money. Pigs get slaughtered. Now, I think we can all appreciate that the main point of that line is that if you're really greedy, uh, you will lose. But I want to challenge two things about that overused, tired line, often used by traders in my experience. The first is, in my world, bears don't actually make much money. I mean, if you look at the history of the stock market, it starts in the lower left, expressed graphically, and it goes to the upper right. It's very hard to make real money or meaningful money as a bear over any meaningful period of time. Now, maybe if you're a specialist at short selling and you are good at identifying truly troubled companies, you can make some money from time to time. And hedge funds certainly benefit from some of that mentality. But I would say, first of all, there's no equating bulls and bears making money. I, I reject the notion that you could say bulls make money without saying bears make a lot less money than that, which would be a smarter maxim to start with. But the other and second part of the maxim I don't like is the notion that if you hang around and try to make a lot, you're going to get slaughtered. In fact, my experience is that the longer you hold great companies, the more money you're going to make 
and it definitely doesn't look piggish or feel piggish. And I don't think it should be expressed in negative terms, the act of buying to hold great companies. Earlier this week, I taped a podcast with somebody else's podcast. I got to be a guest this time with We Study Billionaires, the Investors Podcast Network. This one was with Trey Lockerbie. And we had a great opportunity to talk through how NVIDIA stock has performed since The Motley Fool first recommended. I picked it in April of 2005. And this may sound like the most piggish and greedy way you could possibly approach the markets, but I'm kind of proud of it. I like it a lot. Let's go through the numbers. We first recommended NVIDIA at $1.63. That's all split adjusted. A few splits have happened, but in today's terms, it was at $1.63 on April 15th. That's tax day of 2005. The stock went from $1.63 to 10 two years later. Then 2008 came and it went from 10 back down below $1.63. So a five bagger that we and stock advisor members were sitting on at the time vanished and became a stock that was trading at a loss. Now, from 2008, 9, 10, NVIDIA and the economy started to recover, and the stock finally made it back to $5 a share at the end of 2014. So there we were, $1.63 cost basis. We've now about tripled our money. We'd taken nine years, nine and a half years to do so. Well, since the end of 2014, when NVIDIA was sitting at five, it has done this. In 2016, it crossed 10. And in 2016, it kept going and finished at 23. It became the top performing stock on the S&P 500. So now it's at 23 at the end of 2016. And if you know how I invest, you're not surprised. And if you're a stock advisor member, I hope you acted on this, but I made it my top idea of January 2017. Yep, it was highly publicized as the top performing stock of the S&P 500 the previous year. And a lot of people were probably thinking, well, rotate out of that one. But I decided, let's re-recommend it right here. And the stock that year went from 23 and closed the year at 52, more than a double at the end of 2017. So again, we're sitting with the pigs and hogs on our $1.63 cost basis, now looking at a stock that is at 52. 2018, a bad year. NVIDIA gets caught up with lots of its chips being used to power the early days of cryptocurrency and some AI self-driving cars that didn't work out as well or quickly as everyone expected. And NVIDIA got more than cut in half in 2018. It had reached 70 and it dropped down to 30. So this is all of the volatility that we were riding with our $1.63 cost basis still intact. And I now fast forward to today. Last I checked, NVIDIA is trading around $222 a share, making the investment up 130 times in value over 16 years. Bulls make money. Bears make money. Pigs get slaughtered. I'm not sure exactly what piggish behavior is, but I guess the idea is it's very short-term oriented. If that's true, I might agree that you get slaughtered. But I think in the best sense of the term, you should be greedy. If the market is going to give you that kind of bounce, 100 times your money by just finding great companies and holding them. And NVIDIA is not the only 100 bagger that we're rocking at fool.com. Amazon, Netflix, the list goes on. Bulls make money. Bears, I guess, make some money. But fools make real money. And we do it the right way. 
using time as our ally, not our enemy. Before we move on to pet peeve number three, I would like it to be noted, maybe we should be saying, but fools are bowhead whales, because bowhead whales are Earth's longest living creature. Bowhead whales, which are way up there at the top of the Arctic. So part of the reason I think they live so long is they're in incredibly cold water where they have very slow heartbeats. Bowhead whales live 200 years. So maybe bulls make money, bears make money, pigs get slaughtered, but bowhead whales and fools don't pay much attention to either bulls or bears. They just play the game the right way and end up creating value that outlives everything else. Sometimes I hear about scarcity mindsets, and I understand that approach. In fact, it's very disciplined to have scarcity. And most of the best board game players really understand the scarcity of only getting to do one action when there are three things that you want to do with your cards or your tokens on the board, three things that you want to do, but you can you have to be choiceful and only choose one. I deeply respect that. I'm the opposite, though. I'm an abundance mindset, and so I'm always looking and trying to create more and thinking we can make use of all this. And of course, there's no one way to be, but I think it's worth acknowledging that an abundance mindset is a much lovelier way of expressing what I hope for our world and for your life than pigs and slaughter. All right. From the world of investing, let's now go to the world of business. Pet peeve number three. I'm just going to call this one cocky soulless ads, asterisk. And the asterisk leads to with no sense of humor. So cocky, soulless ads. I'm going to read you the transcript of a 30-second ad I saw about a year ago. It might have been during the Super Bowl. Here it is. We all look at the same world, but we all look at it in a different way. Some see an interior. We see personal space. Some just see the power we see the experiences. Some see aerodynamics. We see attraction. Some see what's there. We see beyond. And there are at least three things that I think I see wrong with this ad. The first is, well, the punchline of this campaign, which I haven't even mentioned yet, because they just put the words on at the end. It just flashes on at the end. And the the punchline, the tagline of this campaign is the future is an attitude. The future is an attitude. Pretty empty, I think. I mean, they never even say the phrase on their commercials. They just put it up at the end. And I think that's because if they actually said it, it would sound so silly that they realize it looks much better being written, not said. They just kind of show it at the end. Now, some of you will probably already recognize this company or this brand. But before I say what the company is and what it does, I want to mention the second thing that I think is pretty lame about this ad and more broadly about cocky, soulless ads. And that is if you're going to have a great line, I really think it should be like distinctively owned by your company and your brand and not just in the minds of the brand firm that you've hired, but really in the world at large. You know, brands are vessels that we need to fill up with meaning. And you do it over time. I don't think it's a great idea to paste on a tagline that you won't even read at the end of your commercial for a Super Bowl campaign when nobody, without me identifying it for you right now, most people would not be able to say what this company is or what it doesn't. For whom is the future 
and attitude. So lame thing number two, in addition to number one, which is just, it's a dumb line. Great lines should be distinctively owned and be differentiating in a knowing way that a consumer would recognize. You know, that makes so much sense coming from them. Well, I guess I will now reveal the brand and it's Audi. And as I looked at Audi, which is, I mean, certainly an estimable car manufacturer. I'm a previous buyer of an Audi car at one point in my life. I have nothing wrong to say about the company or what it's doing. I'm talking about cocky, soulless ads here. But you know, when I Googled what is Audi's vision, and you can do the same thing, just Google Audi's vision. I was looking for their vision statement. The first thing that pops up, and admittedly, this is not from their website, but this is the first thing that pops up. It's from something called comparably.com, which I think is looking, it's sort of a, a corporate register where it keeps up with what different companies are doing. And it says the vision of Audi company is, get ready for this, Audi, the premium brand. That's it. They're trying to be a premium brand. That's the vision. We are a premium brand. You know, we all look at the same world, but we all look at it in a different way. Some see what's there. We see beyond. And now let's go to lame thing number three and move on to the next pet peeve after this. But my first reaction after I watched this ad on television and then thought some more about it is, you know what you just did? This is even worse. I feel like you just actually advertised for Tesla. I'm going to give you a phrase right now, focus group, I might say, if I were a brand professional. You ready? I'm going to ask you which company in this industry you would associate that phrase with. You ready? You ready, focus group? The future is an attitude. Which car maker comes first to mind when you hear that phrase or when you see this 30-second Super Bowl commercial or the two-minute longer version you can watch on YouTube? And I truly think Audi, which is moving as quickly as it can to get more electric cars out there, along with a lot of other car manufacturers, when they put out messages like this that I can't even attribute to them. And I think blind taste tests, most of us wouldn't know that the future is an attitude thanks to Audi. I think you're actually advertising for your competitor who is the company that, if anything, has filled up its brand vessel with the idea that the future is an attitude. Actually, Tesla has a much better vision statement than anything I can find for most other car manufacturers. You ready for Tesla's mission statement, its purpose statement? To accelerate the world's transition to sustainable energy. It doesn't even say anything about cars. And that's because from the beginning, Elon Musk and his team have had a broader vision, which was, let's say it again, to accelerate the world's transition to sustainable energy. And they're doing that through cars as their major initiative, but certainly solar panels and batteries and other aspects. And that is a big vision. And that's a brand that you can really fill up with meaning and people, even if you don't like the Tesla brand, some people really don't like Tesla, at least you can respect it and you know what it stands for. Past guests on this show, one of my favorites, Roy Spence, title of his book, It's Not What You Sell, It's What You Stand For. So I'm not going to pick on Audi anymore. They're doing their best. I kind of like the product, but I'd far rather stand for accelerating the world's transition to sustainable energy than the premium brand. And while we do all look at the same world, we all look at it in a different way. And I'm hoping you're seeing some things differently. In this case, I hope I'm helping you look through cocky, soulless ads, asterisk, asterisk with no sense of humor. 
Well, before I move on to number four, we're going to leave the world of business here and go to sports. But I see my producer, Rick. Rick, you've had some recent experience, maybe a pet peeve, and I'd love for you to share it from your own business experience. Well, I guess maybe at the opposite end of the spectrum from the cocky, soulless advertising is the extremely smart advertising, the algorithm-based advertising, the data based advertising ah. that is so accurate across the internet. They know so much about you that they will serve you exactly what you want to hear at exactly the right time. That's the dream, right? That's the dream when it works. On the other hand, when you get a call from, say, a mortgage company offering you, offering me an opportunity to improve my mortgage rate, when in fact I already have an extremely low mortgage rate, and I got onto some list because of whatever search term I put in or whatever page I looked at or ad I followed. And are you getting calls, Rick, or texts? Calls or texts. I'm getting internet all over the place saying that they can help me with my interest rate because they're so smart about everything they know about me. The problem is that the company that's advertising to me is the company that I have a mortgage with. <laughs> so they should know me better than that. Well, at some point in future, maybe AI will help. The right ad will meet you maybe every time at the right time. But at least for now, there's still clearly a lot of work left. So I just need to get off that list, man. All right. Well, you know what? You at least got this off your chest. Thank you. I feel better. This week, which is part of what we're doing here uh, this week on Pet Peeves Volume 6. Well, thank you for that, Rick. Okay. Let's move on now to the world of sports. Pet Peeve number four. I feel like I kind of went long in the first three because they're about investing in business and that's where this podcast lives. But yeah, I've got a few more than that because we're also living through life and a lot of us are sports fans. And so Pet Peeve number four, I'm just going to call, in quotes, most valuable player. And my pet peeve here is that this phrase, once again, is not really clearly defined and causes all kinds of anxiety, angst, calls to sports talk. And I think maybe this is part of the reason it drives calls to sports talk radio. It gives reasons for ESPN shows to just fill it up for 15 or 20 minutes, take calls over the line and hear from people, you know, who should be the most valuable player? Who is the most valuable player of this team or this sport or league? And here's the problem. It's never really clear what we mean by most valuable player. A lot of people think of the most valuable player, something like this. You know, if now the season's over and we're going to decide who the most valuable player is, pretend we're about to start next season and you could right away draft all of the players in the league who would you take first and right away now? Who is the most valuable player? So it's kind of, you know, best player. Who would be number one on anybody's team for the very next season? The most valuable player. But then somebody raises his hand and says, wait, but hold on. That, that person is actually on a losing team. And I'm never going to vote for a most valuable player on a team that's a losing team. So for me, that person's not even on my top 10 list of most valuable players because that person, as valuable as he or she might be, couldn't even turn enough games into wins for their team. So that's not the most valuable player. And then comes a third idea, which is that, you know, it's really looking at the best team. I mean, who's the team that wins it all at the end of the season and who's their best player? And that person's logic is whoever is the best player on the best team, it's self-evident they're the most valuable player. And what ends up happening is we end up with a conversation 
of names, people batting around, dissing in some cases, players, when the underlying assumptions and the definition of itself of what is a most valuable player is never really set. Now, again, I recognize that this powers a lot of viewers and listeners of a lot of media assets and enterprises. You want to have that argument, especially when you're getting eyeballs and clicks, and you can get people fired up about who should be the most valuable player. In the early days of doing a radio show, the Motley Fool radio show, back with when Tom and I did it as a three-hour live call-in AM radio show, we had very little experience doing radio before that. Tom did a little bit of college television at Brown University. I think I once walked into a studio at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, to read one thing, but I didn't keep it up after that. So we really, we hadn't done radio, and we were about to host a coast-to-coast syndicated radio show. So one of the wiser hands who was around us at the time said, you know, this is cynical. This is just a joke. We never actually did. You know, a way to always light up the lines is just take a shot at a dog or a cat. Say something like, you know what? My cat is the best cat. And also cats are so much better than dogs. And right away, within seconds, the lines will light up. It's a way to wake up any listener base in any radio context. Just start getting the cat and dog talk going. Again, we never resorted to anything that desperate, but I certainly appreciate the wisdom of the point. So I, I recognize that there is a lot of juice and a lot of interplay around, you know, who really is the most valuable player? Who should be formally decorated that way? And let's talk about it. But I would encourage all of us, not just in the realm of sports, but anytime you're talking about an honorific or something that's going to be a label, I think the first obligation that you have to yourself and or the people that you may one day dub or award with your award is to make sure you're clearly defining what are the conditions that make a most valuable player. And I don't think there's any one right answer. Maybe it should just be the best player on the team that won it all. But whatever is the logic, spell it out. That would make sports radio so much more intelligent. That would make things like the Academy Awards clearer for all of us. A lot of us can save a lot of time by simply defining our terms before slinging around our opinions. So there it is, pet peeve number four. We'll just call it MVP. All right, on to pet peeve number five. And this one is just going to the world of science fiction. I lightly referenced this at the top, but it's why does science fiction always need to be dystopian to get our attention or be cool? In fact, there's such a legion of artists and creators, some of them in many cases very good, all of whose vision for the future at almost any given point seems to be that it's going to be worse. It's going to get worse, that it looks like a big bandwagon effect. To me, anyway, it looks like the least creative approach. So anytime I hear about somebody's new dark story, dark video game, dark streaming show about the dark, dark future, I think, oh, you too? Could we get some originality here? Could we get somebody with a vision that the world actually might be better and help us think through what that might look like? I mean, I realize that conflict sparks stories. So I think it's really important as you create a story, if you're going to tell it about the future, there needs to be some form of conflict. But I mean, here was a form of conflict that was much realer than the envisioned conflict in the 1950s. I mean, a lot of 1950s and 60s views of, of our present day or actually, let's go to the 1982 film Blade Runner, 
which, by the way, was set in Los Angeles, I believe, in November 2019. So if you ever want to go back and watch Harrison Ford again in Blade Runner and see what a dark time that was, November 2019, Rick Deckard, whose job as a police Blade Runner is to hunt and kill bioengineered androids known as replicants. I didn't see a lot of that around LA in November 2019. I realize it's going to be effective to look ahead, but where was the movie, I don't know, maybe in 1950 that could foresee that one of the big battles of the 1990s would be PC or Mac? Now, again, I realize even envisioning there would be such a thing as personal computers was not that easy to see in 1950 or even sometimes 1970. But the real battles often are so much more benign than the ones that we're being asked to imagine. And I guess the reason it's a pet peeve is because I'm a positive person. I think in a lot of ways, the world keeps getting better. Now, I realize there are so many problems still in the world today. And Gee whiz, I'm speaking during a pandemic, so that's all self-evident. But if everybody's convinced that it's bad and going to get worse, well, I guess from an investing standpoint, you and I are going to benefit. Because if that is truly the way that we're shaping our minds and our kids' minds, that we're all moving into a dark Blade Runner future at all times, and that's those are the storytellers of our era who want to tell stories about the future, it's always really bad-looking. I guess that means people don't want to invest their money. They certainly don't want to do it over a long term, given how everything's going off a cliff, apparently. And so, ironically, perhaps we as foolish investors benefit from the Blade Runners of the world. I did read an article that talks about how, you know, what science fiction lets us do is it lets us process our anxieties. So, you can take something like the division between rich and poor, and you can accelerate them and make them look really bad years from now and say, wow. That, that's that's going to be so bad, and let's just process some of that anxiety today. Or humans versus cyborgs. Um, I mean, some of us are anxious that one day a robot might take our job, or they could be stronger and better looking than, than we are. So I, I, I acknowledge that these things are possibilities. So I guess sci-fi lets us process anxieties, but as we move on now to pet peeve number six, I just want to say there's another aspect of storytelling, and I think about it especially from the world of fantasy, which I know equally as well. And that's often a backward-looking, nostalgic view of the world as it once might have been Middle-earth. And ironically, when we look back, it's more about wish fulfillment, isn't it? And we look back at the Hollywood rom-coms of three decades or five decades ago, and it's very nostalgic, and it almost always ends happily, and it's not a dark world most of the time that we're living in. And so it's a really interesting generalization that we want to look into the future and process our anxieties by imagining how bad things are going to get. Whereas when we look backward, we tend to want to have all of our wishes fulfilled and our happy itch for nostalgia rubbed. Anyway, before I get too far out of my element, I would love to see sci-fi that truly is original, that goes against the grain of the vast majority of bandwagon directors and creatives today that always express the future as worse. I would love to see somebody show real originality and show the world as better. All right. We're down to the last three. Pet peeve number six. This one's about personality tests. Now, I like personality tests, even if they're not right. And a lot of people, for example, will argue you blew in the face that Myers-Briggs has never been scientifically proven. It's just a framework. Uh, it, it has no real significance. Other people really do interpret themselves and the world at large around them based on 
whether you're an I or an E, an introvert or an extrovert in, in the Myers-Briggs framework. And there are many others besides Myers-Briggs. There's Clifton Strengths Finders. There's one I once took called a disc, which said I love innovative breakthroughs, which is absolutely true of me. I do love innovative breakthroughs. Certainly, I've welcomed Shirzad Shamin onto the show a couple of times in the last year or so. And you might have taken the saboteur assessment test. I highly recommend, if you haven't, that you go to positiveintelligence.com and have fun learning how you might be sabotaging yourself. Personality tests. So I like them. And what I like about them is that they provide us a framework for conversation. They give us a platform that we can share because you took the test and I took the test. By the way, you haven't taken this? I sure hope you'll take the test. Then I'll share with you my results and it gives you an opportunity to have a conversation that that is a meaningful conversation and certainly can grow relationships and produce good things. I think that's in part why personality tests are so popular. Here's the pet peeve. My pet peeve is sometimes I've seen people take these tests and after they tell me who or what they are, I start thinking, you know what should have also happened? You should have had me take the test about you. Or you should have had your friends around you take the test and say, what would I think David would answer here? Because what can sometimes happen is that we shine a mirror to ourselves based on how we want to answer the questions, but it would be far richer personality test industry if there was a process by which others who know me well, who observe you, would take the test on your behalf, and I bet there'd be more of a 360 view of who and what we really are. Are we really an I or an E? We might think we're one, but wouldn't it be interesting to hear those near and dear to us how they would score us? So I'm quite sure there's somebody out there in the personality test industry who's gotten onto this and started to realize it's not just about what you think of yourself. It's actually what others would say about you based on their deep knowledge and observation, seeing blind spots you yourself might miss. So I'd love to see the next-gen personality test emerge where it's more of a collective around you to help you really understand you. So yes, I'm a big fan of finding a test on the internet, taking it and seeing what colors your parachute. But if you want to really get serious, I think you should find out what everybody else knows some colors of your parachute are, even if you're not seeing it. All right, pet peeve number seven. Now I'm treading lightly with this one because I'm quite sure somebody listening to me actively has done this or does this. And if so, please know I still like you. This is not that big a deal. You know, part of pet peeves and why I think these podcasts I hope are fun is because some of these I do deeply feel and feel strongly about. Others are just kind of fun to put out there. And number seven would be one of those. So have you ever worked in a restaurant, dear listener? I bet you have. A lot of us have worked somewhere within the hospitality industry, whether in our younger days and or our present days. Well, here's one thing that if you're my waiter or waitress, if you're my server at my table, this is the one thing I would ask you not to do. And here we go. You ready? How are we doing tonight? What are we thinking about appetizers? Are we thinking about dessert? I think you're starting to see the one thread that runs through those otherwise perfectly fair questions. And I would describe it as the use of the collective we. I won't say here the royal we, but the collective we when it's really not we. It's not we who are feeling. It's me and or my wife or family. It's If you're a server, it's, it's you. And that feels human to me. When you say, how are you doing tonight? That feels so much better to me than what sounds kind of like a a patronizing 
or over familiar? Is that what it is? Or if you want to have fun with it, the royal we, uh, where they're actually talking to themselves. But whatever it is, I think the second person singular or even the collective you is going to get, yeah, let me put it this way, is going to get you a better tip at the end of the night. I realize tipping is controversial. People like Danny Meyer, past guest on this podcast, the wonderful entrepreneur behind some of New York City's best restaurants, Union Square Hospitality Group. I realize Danny has worked really hard to take tipping out of the equation altogether. He points out that servers get overpaid and people who bust the tables, work in the kitchens often don't get any tip and so they get underpaid. So he's tried to create a fairer approach that gets everybody more compensation and takes the annoyance of tipping out altogether, which if that ever happens, I would love that. But in the meantime, I do tip all the time when I go to Austria or Italy, as I did last month, a wonderful celebration of our 31st wedding anniversary. I still tip and I, I find myself asking, wait, Europeans don't actually tip in this case and I'm an American, but sometimes they expect Americans to be yokels they expect Americans to be retail investors and just tip anyway. And so I still kind of do that, but I'd love not to tip. But since I am still tipping, just know, dear listener, that if you are connected to anyone in the hospitality industry and they are waiting tables and me or somebody else like me, somebody else hearing me right now who agrees with this point, you're going to get a slightly less awesome tip if you start with, how are we feeling tonight? And before we hit number eight, let's just quickly reflect on, once again, where we've been. Pet peeve number one, retail investors. Pet peeve number two, bulls make money, bears make money, pigs get slaughtered. Number three, cocky, soulless ads, asterisk. Number four, MVP, define your terms. Number five, dystopian sci-fi, so cool, so edgy so common. Number six, when you take a personality test, maybe it's not just about what you think of yourself. And number seven, which we just covered, how are we doing this podcast? All right, closing it out, pet peeve number eight. I'm going to call this one more to life than money. There's more to life than money. How many times have I heard that sentiment expressed in a thousand different ways, but at the heart of it, it contains this basic moral germ. And it is kind of a a moral line. It's, you know, money's kind of bad. And if, if you want money, you're kind of bad. And the more money there is, the more likelihood there is for greed, abuse, all kinds of bad stuff around money. At one point, I tried to reverse this. This is a line I put it up there from time to time. I'll do it right now. I would say there is certainly more to life than money, but money will add so much more to your life. And I really do believe that. So with this pet peeve number eight, I'm just expressing maybe a lifelong annoyance to people who make money sound as if it's bad or irrelevant or anybody who would like more of it is just chasing it. I'm putting that in air quotes greedily. I I realize some people do that, and I know the sentiments out there, and the word money, I think, is included in the Bible more than almost any other noun in the Bible. I realize it's an important topic for many, but what I've found too often is it's a negative for most people. And to think that somebody would be ambitious to make money 
or to make more money, or to be a pig and get slaughtered simply because they're abiding by good investing principles, that that would be a bad thing. Yeah, more to life than money. So yes, there is certainly more to life than money, but I think if you have the right integration of your thinking, if you make sure that you've got some emotional intelligence around this, that other people validate what you're doing as you try to make more money over time. And as I once said in my 300 podcast, one of my favorite passages earlier this year, when I did my 300 podcast, that would be the 300th consecutive weekly podcast Rick and I have done. I talked about this, that section of this, and it's that how'd you make your money says so much more than just branding money as good or bad. How'd you make your money? Which is another way of saying, how have you spent your time and your life? What is your purpose? What are you driving for? And is it adding value to the world? You know, one of the best ways to improve our investing is just to ensure that we are filling our portfolios with companies that make our portfolio reflect our best vision for the future. Does that make you think of anything else this podcast? Right the non-dystopian future that I think we're moving into and making your portfolio reflect your best vision for it. Directly opposite dystopia, in my experience anyway, is going to lead to your best investor self and your best investment results. And by the way, if that causes you to make a lot of money, I'm the first to slap you on the back and say, add a boy, add a girl, add a fool, because that's what we're all trying to do. And then the question will finally shift from how you made it to what you're gonna do with it, and thereby some other day hangs a tail. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.